Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Do you ever have a conversation with someone and they start telling you a story? And the more they talk, the more you realize you have no idea what they're talking about or why they're sharing that story with you. Uh, Tom, before he came on staff here, used to do this to me all the time. To be fair to Tom, he's gotten considerably better over the years, but when he first started talking, he would tell me these stories and he would be so excited that I was convinced, but this story is going to be big. It's going to be life-changing. It's going to be funny. It's going to be, there's something that's going to happen in this story because he is so pumped to tell it. And so, I mean, this is like legitimately a story, a conversation we had. He's like, man, dude, let me just tell you, you're not going to believe this. This is the craziest thing happened to me. Like, I'm not even sure I believe it, and it happened to me. So, so there I am, right? I'm going to the store, and he's so excited. I'm like getting excited about the story. I'm like, okay, you're at the store. I'm with you. He's like, man, I'm walking through, and I'm getting stuff, and I go to the checkout line. I'm like, the checkout line, that's where the story always goes down. Here's where it comes in. He goes, and I, I'm like, it just stops. I'm like, okay, Tom, little storyteller that you are, letting the anticipation build, working on the hype, giving some, some tension. I, I bought milk. Like, and? No, that's it. That's the story. How did you get that excited about buying milk, Tom? What's the point? Why did you tell me that story? And why on earth would you so excited about it? To be fair to Tom, he is in good company. There are several times in the Gospels where Jesus tells a story. And if you just look at it for the story, you kind of have to ask yourself, like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why are you so excited about this story? We're going to see one of those today. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, as we continue in our series, Rooted. Now, the focus of this series is to address the, the biblical imperative for growth. See, all living things grow. We see it in our physical lives. We see it in nature. We see it in our workplace, right? When you get a new job, the expectation is that you're going to grow in your knowledge and ability to perform that job. Everywhere in life, it's natural, and we recognize it, we expect it, except for in the one area where it matters the most. In our spiritual lives, we have a tendency to view that growth as optional. Yeah, I want to grow, I desire to grow, it's just, I got a lot of other stuff going on right now, so I'll put pause on that. You know, I'll, I'll deal with my relationship with Jesus, and I'll grow in Him, but just later, I got to deal with other stuff. Life is full of things that demand our time and attention. And so often, we give it to them without ever stopping to ask if those things are worthy of that time or attention. The most valuable resource in this world is not money. All the money in the world can't buy you a single extra moment of life. The most valuable resource that we have in this life is time. 
from the moment we're born, we draw breath, we have a limited number of breaths before the end. Because death is the inevitable end to life. In a finite, broken world, death is the natural thing that we are all headed towards. And every breath that you breathe, you breathe because God gives it to you to breathe. But how many of those breaths do we give back to Him? How much of our time do we really devote to focusing on Jesus and growing in Jesus and maturing in Jesus? In Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God calls some to be prophets, some to be teachers, some to be evangelists, and some to be shepherds. Why? To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. See, the job of pastors and church leaders is not to put on fun events or to build your passion projects out for you so that you don't have to build them because church leaders, they're not spiritual cruise directors. The job of church leaders is to equip the people of God to do the work of God because we are all called to engage in the mission of God. And so in verse 13, God expresses that his desire, his goal, his purpose is that we would all obtain unity in the faith through Jesus. That through our relationship with Jesus, through our focus on Jesus, that we would overcome our differences in race and in, in economics and social and experiential background and political views and all the different petty things that we allow to divide us, that through Jesus we would overcome those things, that we would become one people celebrating and worshiping one Jesus together in one movement of God. God's desire expressly is that we would mature into the fullness of Christ Jesus. Why? So that we will not be blown in every direction like children believing whatever we're told and taught by the world around us. God wants you to mature in Jesus in every way. Jesus gives us a new life that we might mature in him. And the natural expectation of the life that Jesus gives is that in that life, we're going to mature, we're going to grow. And if we're not maturing in Jesus, the question we need to consider is, are we really belonging to Jesus? So Matthew chapter 13, what we're going to do, we're going to read the text, and then we're going to circle back and unpack it. Matthew 13. Verse 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat down beside the sea and great crowds gathered around him. This happens all the time with Jesus because he's a very popular teacher. So he got into a boat. Why did Jesus get in a boat? Because great crowds have gathered. Water serves as a natural sound amplifier. So by getting in a boat and going out on the water, Jesus' voice would be amplified. People would be better able to hear it. He gets into the boat. It says he sat down and the crowds stood on the beach. See, in our culture, teacher stands, everybody else sits. In Jesus' culture, it's the opposite. Teacher sits, everybody else stands up. And he told them many things in parables. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some of the seed fell among the path, and the birds came along and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root... They withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. 
Other seed fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. If you just read this story, the natural question that should pop into your head is, Jesus, what are you talking about? Because here's the story. Farmer goes out in the field, scatters seeds. Some seed grows, some seed doesn't. That's the story. And... But then Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. What he's saying is, listen, guys, what I'm telling you here is so incredibly important. I don't want you to miss it. But what Jesus is saying doesn't sound important. It's a picture of everyday life in an agricultural society. It'd be like if I, went, if I stood up here and I said, guys, I'm going to tell you a story. It's going to change your life forever. Yesterday, I went to the grocery store and I bought groceries. Please tell me that you're thinking, okay, and? <laughs> it's not that you don't care about the information. I mean, you really shouldn't care about that information, but okay, cool, you're informing me. The problem is the expectation that is set is, hey, this information is important. And then what I told you doesn't seem important. So what is Jesus talking about here? That's a great question. Let's unpack it. We'll circle back and we'll start in verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, the sower went out. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path, and the birds came along and devoured them. So Jesus is teaching in a parable. Parables are kind of like fables. They're practical, easy to relate to, easy to understand stories that teach a deeper truth. Now, typically in parables, there's a layered meaning and depth to what the parable is trying to teach. Because the normal rule of parables is that every element in the story represents someone or something. Now, this particular parable stands out a little bit because, depending on who you ask, Jesus teaches, uses about 38 different parables in the New Testament. He explains like two. This is one of them. And so Jesus explains for us what all of these different elements are designed to represent, but even after his explanation, he doesn't identify the sower. So the sower could be Jesus, the sower could be anyone who presents the gospel, the sower could be both. Then we have the seed. The seed represents the gospel. It is the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, that God does not hold our sin against us, but through the righteousness of Jesus that has been poured out over us through the shedding of his blood, God chooses to view us as righteous, though we are not righteous in any way because Jesus was righteous on our behalf. Jesus was good enough for God's standard on our behalf. The sowing of the seed is the sharing, the preaching, the presentation of the gospel. And as the gospel is presented, the seed goes everywhere. And here's where the story forks. What happens with the soil? See, the seed lands on different types of soil and what happens then is not a result of the difference in the seed, it's a result of the difference in the soil and what the soil does with the seed. What you do with the gospel determines what will grow in your life. So the first soil is the path. This is not a paved road, it's not a gravel road, it's dirt. The difference with this soil is that it's been trampled on over and over again. So the more the soil gets walked on, the more it becomes compact, and the surface of the soil becomes dense. And eventually that soil becomes so hard, the seed cannot get in. 
And so the first soil represents people who reject the gospel out of hand. They want nothing to do with it. They're not interested. They're not questioning. They're not curious. They just reject it. And the gospel, it doesn't change their life. It doesn't influence their life because they never really internalize it. This is just people who reject and have no interest in the gospel. Verse 5. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. So soils two and three suffer from a similar problem. The first that we see is the rocky soil. It's, it's shallow. Here the seed gets in, and it grows very quickly, but it doesn't get deep. It doesn't establish a root system. And so because the seed doesn't have a root system, the plant can't get the nutrients that it needs. So it withers and dies. This soil represents someone who receives the gospel with joy and excitement. Did you catch that? Soil number two represents someone who receives the gospel. This is someone who accepts Jesus, who believes in Jesus, who calls themselves a born-again Christian. This is not someone who rejects Jesus. This is someone who says, yes, they receive, they respond to the message of the gospel. But they don't take that seed very deep into their lives. They grow, and they grow quickly because they don't go very deep. Then life gets hard. There's pain. There's suffering. There's struggles and hardships. In some places in the world, not typically America, but in some places in the world, there's persecution. And so the seed begins to wither. It's slow at first. Stop coming to church. Stop engaging. Stop connecting. Stop growing. But that seed begins to wither and to die. These are people who accept Jesus, who respond to the gospel with joy and excitement, but it doesn't last. Right? They have faith when it's easy. They have faith when it's convenient. They have faith when it's comfortable. When things get hard, that seed is not equipped to endure the seasons of life. See, there are a lot of people who make a decision for Jesus without ever being devoted to Jesus. The third soil, the soil that falls among the thorns or the weeds, here, the seed takes. It grows down deep, it builds a root system, and the crop begins to grow. It even looks healthy and vibrant. But then, the worries, the struggles, the concerns of life grow up and choke the life out of the seed. There's so many different things that these weeds can represent. Busyness, hustle, materialism, worry, fear. So many different components, right? One of the big ones is our thinking. So a lot of times what happens is that we come to Jesus we make a decision for Jesus. We like Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We desire Jesus. But we're not really changed by him. And so a lot of times what happens is you have these people who give their life to Jesus, but their life isn't any different because of it. 
Right? They're still informed by the world. They're still gathering to thinking. Their ideas, their values, their principles are still being set, not by what the scripture says, but by what society says. They're listening, oh, this group on this side says this, and this group on this side says this, and all their thinking and all their beliefs and all their attitudes are being dictated by culture and not by Christ. So you see this seed grow up, and you see this person that they've got, they're saying all the right things, but their life, it doesn't really look like Jesus. It still looks very much like the person they were before, like the world. Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If who you are, what you value, what you believe, how you think, looks the same after you come to Jesus as it did before you came to Jesus. You don't have a renewed mind. You have a regurgitated mind. When was the last time, church, that you said what you believed, what you thought, how you felt about an issue, and you started with the word instead of starting with the world. See, it's so easy to flip those, right? Well, okay, well, I believe that, you know, God is love and it's all about love, and so I'm going to take that concept and I'm going to read it into Scripture to find Scriptures that justify this belief rather than letting the Word dictate what the Word teaches. We start with an answer, we work our way back to a question rather than starting with the question of what does God think, what does God feel, what does God say about this, and drawing conclusions from there. How often do we care more about what is popular, more about what the people around us say, more about what our friends and coworkers say than we do about what Jesus has to say? The gospel is a counterculture. It will rarely be on trend. But this third soil, the weeds that often grow up in this third soil can be seen in our thinking. They can be seen in our focus. Right? We live in a, in a world that's busy. Busy, go, go, go. Always something to do. Always some place to be. In fact, we tend to wear busyness like a badge of honor. I got all this stuff I got to do. I got all these things that I'm involved with. I do all this stuff. And there's no margin. There's no free time. There's no time for growth and maturing and development. It's just go. And we have all these things that we focus our hearts on. We got all these things that we prioritize and we value. And most of the things are not bad things. But anything in your life that's not centered on Jesus, built on Jesus, focused on Jesus, connected to Jesus, is a weed that threatens to choke the life of Jesus out of your heart. There are a lot of Christians who make a decision for Jesus, who like, desire, and seek to follow Jesus, but they never really make that devotion to Jesus. They've got all these other things as well. They want Jesus to be a part of their life, and that church is the problem. When I was younger, one of the things my family liked to do for special occasions and things like that, we liked to go out to eat together. My dad and I were very similar. When we go out to eat, we're like, bring me food so that I can't see the person on the other side of the table. I don't care what it is. Just build, bring me a mountain of food, stack it up. I don't want to know that they're here for the next 35 minutes, or for me, like 3.5 minutes. My mom, a little different. My mom's a little person, right? She's small enough that, you know, on a windy day, you might want to tie a string around her ankle because she might, <laughs> she's tiny. It's a bad joke, but still. 
So she goes out to eat. She orders like a salad, which is what my food eats. <laughs> and a lot of times when she orders a salad, she gets the dressing on the side. And I'm like, okay, at least like let them toss it in the thing, man. It's a lot less work. You can get all the, the leaves can get covered in the one thing that makes eating a salad bearable, the dressing. But she didn't do that. She liked it on the side because she wasn't sure she was going to like the dressing. So she put it on the side. She's got it, but she's not committed to it. And she's got it on the side. You know, they might put on too much. So having the dressing on the side allows her to control when, where, and how much dressing gets on the salad. At which point you start to wonder, what are you talking about? Why are you telling this story? That's the third soil. Jesus isn't the main dish. Jesus isn't even the appetizer that comes with the main dish. He's the salad dressing you put on the side. The third soil approaches Jesus like salad dressing. We're not really committed to it. We want him, but we're not sure that we're committed to him because maybe we're not going to like how it works with the salad. Maybe we're not going to like how it pairs with our dinner. We want him there, but we want to control when, where, and how much of that Jesus gets into our lives. We want to be in charge of it. We want to control it. So put Jesus here on the side and let me distribute him as I see fit. That's the third soil. Jesus is there. He's interested. He's a desire. He's not really in control of much. The third soil, the seed that is planted there also withers and it dies. See, the soil represents our hearts. It's our receptiveness and response to the gospel. And three of the soils are bad, representing the hardness, shallowness, and self-indulgence of the human heart. And yet soil two and soil three are the soils that most churches and most Christians are focused on. Because we want to reach people for Jesus. We want to see people give their lives to Jesus. We want to see people make decisions because decisions are exciting. Decisions are meaningful. Decisions make us feel good like we're a part of something that's really happening. And we love those. I mean, some churches, that's their mission statement, the vision that they put proudly in big, bold letters is we want to see people make decisions for Jesus. And so when you see what happens so often in this mindset is everything becomes about and focused on getting people to that decision. We got to get them to make decision. We got to get them to make that decision. We got to get them to convert to Christianity. So put your hands in the air if you want Jesus in your life. That's the focus. And that's the attitude that we put into the church. It's on this decision. Problem is, that decision is meaningless. <gasps> Did you just say the decision to follow Jesus is meaningless? Hold on. Before you start throwing things at me. Let me ask you a question. From the farmer's perspective, on a practical level, do you know what the difference between soil one that rejects the gospel outright and soil two and three are? Nothing. None of them produce fruit. You think the farmer cares that the crop starts quickly and then dies? 
You think he cares that it grows up and it looks good for a couple of minutes and then it dies? No, the farmer cares about one thing. Does it produce fruit, yes or no? And in that, all three of these first soils have the same answer. No. How they got to know is different. But they all end up did not produce fruit. So we get this question from time to time. It comes up with a certain degree of regularity. Why don't you guys do altar calls? You preach a sermon. People are ready to respond. Why don't you do an altar call? Right? You got to land the plane. You got them to the point of decision. You got to get them to make that decision. I've had people tell me, come up to me after a service and say, man, that was a great sermon, but you really failed. Because you led them to the point. You led them to where they were ready to make the decision, but you didn't strike while the iron's hot. You just left them there. So you failed because if you don't have the altar call, if you don't have the decision, you're just wasting everybody's time. So if I can lovingly, graciously, gently respond to that, I can do some of those things. <laughs> Two things. Number one, if someone needs an altar call to come to Jesus, they're not coming to Jesus. <gasps> what? An altar call is an emotional moment. And what you're drawing to, what you're getting people to act on, is the emotion of that moment. And when that emotion wears off, so does the decision and the commitment that went with it. Now, am I saying that nobody who responds to an altar call is genuinely giving their life to Jesus? By no means. What I'm saying is that someone who is genuinely giving their life to Jesus doesn't need an altar call in order to do it. Wow, that's bold. You know how I know that? Show me an altar call in Scripture. Number two, right? You got to get them to that decision. You got to strike while the iron's hot. Again, we tend to bring our worldview, our culture, into our understanding of God's word, and we live in a market economy that's all about point of sale. This is your point of sale. You got to get people to make that decision and take that first step. When they hear the message, that's when they're ready to take the step. So you got to capitalize. If someone wants Jesus at the end of a message but doesn't want Jesus the next day, the next week, the next month, guess what? don't really want Jesus. <gasps> Who are you to say something? I'm doing a lot of gasping in this sermon. <laughs> Who are you to say something so bold and audacious as that? What gives you the right? I don't know. Maybe that Jesus says it over and over again in the Gospels. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Any worker who sets his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom of God. If you're going to build, you weigh the cost before you start to make sure you got the resources to do it. You want to follow me? Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Over and over again, Jesus says, if you're not committed to this, if you're not with me on this, don't bother coming. I'm not interested in how many people start the race. I'm interested in how many people finish it. Because the farmer cares about one thing. Does the crop produce fruit? It's not about a moment. It's not about a decision. It's not about a declaration. It's about a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. It's about an intentional, willful 
death to yourself, to your desires, to your interests, to your priorities, to your beliefs. It means when the world says, oh, this is sexuality, and this is okay, and this is good, and this is right, we say, no, this is what God says. It's about dying to yourself every single day, removing all that is you from your life so that all that is left is what Jesus builds and grows in you through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Reaching a thousand people with a message means nothing if two years from now those thousand people aren't still with Jesus. See, we like numbers. We like results. Jesus says, give me 12 guys. Give me 12 people who are sold out. 12 people who will bleed and suffer and struggle with me, and I'll turn the world upside down. Because the test church of true faith is not what you declare in a moment. It's what you do with Jesus for your lifetime. Verse 8. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. After three bad soils, we see the good one. We say, oh, look, this soil has a good harvest. No. No, in the barren deserts of Palestine, a harvest that was seven or eight times what was sown was considered exceptional. So if a farmer reaped a harvest seven or eight times what he sowed, he's diving into a vault of gold and swimming around like Scrooge McDuck. 30 times is unthinkable. 100 times is unimaginable. Jesus is not saying if you're the good soil and the seed of the gospel grows in your life, you're going to have a good harvest. What he's saying is if you're the good soil, you will have a supernatural harvest a harvest that goes beyond anything that you could ask, think, or even begin to imagine. What he's saying is what the Holy Spirit is going to do in your life if you are the good soil. And he's going to produce his fruit in ways that you can't even fathom. He's going to do something in you that you cannot even imagine because the harvest is going to be so far beyond anything that was sown into you that you're not even going to recognize yourself on the other side of it. We live in a world that says, be yourself. Be you. Be true to yourself. Jesus says, no. The only thing you need to do to yourself is die. We are the soil. And what we do with the gospel reveals what kind of soil we are. The question that we ought to ask ourselves is, what separates the good soil from the bad soil? It's not the seed. It's not how the seed was scattered. This is the most beautiful, freeing thing for you. When you share the gospel, all that seed's just getting tossed out and landing. The difference between whether the seed takes root is not about the quality of your presentation. The difference between the soils, it's not even the soil. It's what else is in the soil. What else has happened to the soil? When I grew up in church, and this is one of those sermons, this is the, one of those texts that people preach all the time, in part because it's a story that Jesus tells, and then he explains. So basically, Jesus does the work for you. You get a week off. Right? Here's what it means. Jesus tells you what it means. I just tell everybody what Jesus said, and then the sermon's over. 
And every time, so I've heard this sermon a lot of times in my life, and every time the message is the same, there's three bad soils and one good soil. 75% of people get it wrong, so make sure you get it right. Make sure you let Jesus into your life. Church, that's the wrong application. Sounds right. It's completely wrong. Because the point of this parable is not 75% of people miss it. It's that 75% of people receive Jesus. 75% of the soils respond to the gospel. 75% of the soils invite the gospel, make a decision for Jesus, and bring him into their lives. 75%, three out of four soils, say yes to the presentation of the gospel, but only one remains. Because letting Jesus in is not the sto- how the story ends. That's not the application that Jesus is going for. It's part of it, but it's incomplete. There are three things that the good soil does that separates it from the other soils. The first is that it takes the seed of the gospel in immediately. That's what separates it. That's where the first soil fails. The second is that it draws that seed in deep. This is where the second soil fails. It brings the seed deep into its life so that the seed can develop roots, so that that seed, so that that gospel becomes the focus, becomes the center that everything else grows around. And the third is that it holds on to that seed exclusively. This is where the third soil fails. The good soil It's a soil where the gospel is not fighting for nutrients. It's not fighting for attention. It's not fighting for focus with anything else. See, what separates the good soil from the bad soil, it's not the quality of the dirt. It's what else is in it. And the good soil, we become the good soil. We are the good soil when we remove all that is not Jesus, that is not focused on Jesus, that is not elevating and glorifying and honoring to Jesus when we remove everything else from our lives. Because if it's not all about Jesus, it's a weed that's choking the life of the gospel from your heart. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, all that is human history, money, poverty, war, ambition, prostitution, classes, And slavery is the long and terrible story of man seeking something besides God which will make him happy. This theological word for that is sin. Church, the hardest soil to avoid becoming is the third soil. Because even if you start weeding first, even if you make room for that gospel in your life first, those weeds can grow up later. Distract us, divert us, draw our energy and our passion in our hearts away from Jesus. We live in a world with no margin. A world that prides itself on being busy. A world that says, go, go, go. Jesus says, God says, be still and know that I'm God. So when was the last time you were still? When was the last time you said no to something without something else taking its place so that you could just spend time with God? When was the last time you made time to grow, 
to focus on Jesus, to mature in him, just to spend time with him. The question we ought to ask, because here's the thing, Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. Actually, I apologize, I said that wrong. Jesus will not be a part of your life. He's not interested in that. He didn't die on a cross and give everything to you so that he could be the side salad dressing. Jesus is life. And what he offers is an exclusive, all-encompassing, life-transforming relationship. Jesus doesn't want a part of you. He's not going to accept a part of you. It's all or nothing with him. And we sing these songs, you can have it all, Lord, I surrender all. All these songs where we boldly declare that all that we have and all that we are belongs to Jesus, but does our life sing the same song as our lips? The question we ought to ask is, what kind of soil am I? Are you the soil that's hard? Hears the truths and just immediately rejects them. Are you the soil that's shallow? Where you listen and you'll believe whatever God says so long as it's easy to do. As long as it doesn't create conflict or hardship in your life, you'll believe it, you'll take it in. Are you the thorny soil? The soil that likes Jesus, that desires Jesus, but is never really going to surrender itself, never really going to give itself fully to Jesus because there's too many other exciting things in the world that you want to focus on. Or are you the good soil? It's not Jesus. It's not for Jesus. If it's not about Jesus, I'm going to kill it in my life. I'm going to change all that I am. I'm going to conform all that I am to him that he may live in me and through me. All that we have, church, all that we are, it's all about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. And if that's what your heart is, then the crop that he will produce in you is supernatural and is the reason that the sower scatters seed in the first place. The sower doesn't scatter just to scatter seed. He scatters seed because he wants to reap a harvest. That harvest is you when the fruit of the Spirit produces in your life. When you devote yourself, when you focus on Jesus, that harvest is you. And just as the, the farmer rejoices with joy when he brings in the harvest, so Jesus rejoices with joy when that fruit is produced in you. So we're going to do an altar call. Really? Okay. <laughs> At least I thought it was funny. I'm going to challenge you with this. Every one of us has things in our lives that are competing with the gospel for our attention. Find those things. Root them out and remove them. That you might be ever, only, always about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You alone are worthy of all that we have and all that we are. 
You alone are worthy of praise. And so, God, I pray that you would create in us, that you would stir in us a passion for you, that you would help us fix our eyes on you because only you are worth our time. Only you are worth our devotion and our energy. And God, I pray that we would pursue you, that we would seek you, and that we would conform everything else that's in our life to be centered on and built around you, that we, the way we love our families would be focused on you, that the way we treat our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends would be focused on you, that every aspect of every breath of our lives would be in pursuit of more of you, that you would grow in us the seed of the gospel, that we might mature in it, that we might produce fruit in it, and that you might reap from it an incredible harvest of life transformation. God, we are here to glorify you. May you receive all the glory and the praise. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.